This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast here on the AHP Digital Radio Network, the only dedicated hunting, shooting and fishing radio show here in Australia. If you'd like to find out more about AHP, visit australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. If you would like to email us, then you can go to the website and click on the contact icon. Or alternatively, you can email me directly at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to listen to the Australian Hunting Podcast, you can visit the website and click on the archived podcast link. You can also subscribe to the Australian Hunting Podcast on iTunes for automatic updates. Make sure you leave a comment and rate us five stars on iTunes. That would be much appreciated. On Facebook, you can find us under Australian Hunting Podcast, where listeners are sharing ideas, thoughts and opinions, as well as photos and videos twitter.com forward slash ah podcast if you'd like to follow our twitter feed you can also check out my videos on youtube under the name aussie federal control alternatively all social media links can be found on the website everyone knows i love my listeners but i've got especially some extra special love for my donating listeners if you'd like to donate or do a monthly subscription to the show go to the website and click on the donate button on the right hand side of the main page and show your support which is always appreciated that helps us keeps the lights on in this joint and pay those bills we have over 65 hours of free podcasting audio content to date for you all to enjoy Share the Australian Hunting Podcast with your friends and family and get as many people as you know into hunting, shooting and fishing as possible so they can enjoy this fantastic lifestyle that we all love. So as usual, without further ado, let's get into my interview with today's guest. This is Rod Drew, CEO of Field and Game Australia. This is Rob Fickling from Beyond the Divide and Maroka 30. Hi, this is Col Allison, hunter, journalist for 42 years and a shooter. Hi, this is Russell Mark, Olympic gold medalist. This is Charlie Jacoby from Field Sports Britain. Hey everybody, it's Tom Knapp and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast, here with Dan Selby to have a chat about Mulloway fishing and Mulloway tactics. Dan is from uh, Sydney Sport Fishing Adventures. How are you, Dan? I'm well, thanks, Jason. How are you? Excellent, mate. I know we're here to talk about Mulloway, but first, I guess people want to find out who you are. Tell us about yourself. I mean, I guess, you know, where you grew up, how you got into fishing, and just some general information. Mate, um, I'm 31 at the moment. I grew up in the Hawkesbury, at the, the top of the uh, tidal reaches of the Hawkesbury River, up near Windsor. Uh, grew up chasing bass and mullet, carp, um, from you know very young age. Um, I got away from it a bit in my teenage years, as you do, chasing girls and riding skateboards. <laughs> uh, but got back into it again as soon as I started working. I was out of high school, um, found soft plastics, and that really um, like opened up the breadth of fishery that we we were doing and um, yep. like light spin outfits, and we really – you could get into any which waterway and have a ball with it and um, – so once once I found the love of that, I had to just find a way to do it every day. So um, I went away and got my coxswain certificate, and um, I founded Sydney Sport Fishing Adventures in late 2010. And uh, here we are, five years later, 
um, with a pretty good business going and yep. uh, we target all the trophy fish around Sydney Harbour and Hawkesbury River, uh, kingfish and jewfish mainly. Uh, we do focus on other species as well. And uh, it's quite a rewarding career. Yeah. yeah. I can imagine when you go, I've got to work in an office and you get to go fishing all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a bad office when you're down there, but you, you pick your good days and your bad days as well. So, yeah. yeah. Was it your family? Did your Was your dad into fishing or your brothers or sisters or just you? no one in your family fishes like you? Or? No, not, not many. My uncles mainly. I grew up without a father, uh, which is what I sort of suspect has been the draw card uh, as to getting into fishing was that uh, male companionship. Um, and learning and, and um, just evolving through fishing um, was quite a good way to grow up, um, I reckon. It, it teaches you the patience necessary to uh, come out with an outcome in the yeah. end. Yeah, it's, it's quite a good way. Even though we are talking about mulloway fishing, is that your favourite? What you've had to pick one fish, what's your favourite? Mulloway are, are quite high on the list, but personally at the moment, uh, Murray <laughs> Cotter uh, yeah. taking a little bit of my time up. Um, I actually just went out there a couple of days ago and chased some uh, mighty green fish. Yeah, they're Australian icon, and um, they hit hard. You don't catch many of them, and I love the challenge of um, just going and exploring out in the bush out west and uh, taking in the sight sounds and, um, yeah, the odd fish. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about uh, Sydney sport fishing adventures. You run the business, and you charter, take people out, help them, you know, I guess get over some, you know, if they want to f- actually catch some fish and they're not maybe successful themselves, they want to get out with a bunch of mates. How did you get involved in running your business, and why did you want to start running a business? Um, I wanted to start running it because I just wanted to fish every day, uh, pretty much. <laughs> Even though I don't do much fishing, I'm out there every day, I'm experiencing it. Um, and I wanted to show other people how good the fishing in Sydney can be um, and how to go about it, the modern techniques and tactics you need to fool these fish. Um, yeah, so I did anything I possibly could. Um, I worked on commercial vessels for, um, for free, like volunteer work, um, prawn trawlers. I, I actually worked on a vehicular ferry, which is a commercial vessel. Um, which allowed me to crew quite a few hours um, of commercial time, um, which allowed me to get my coxswain certificate after doing all the tests and uh, oral examinations and things. And, uh, yeah, that was quite a challenge, but well worth it in the end. You know, you have to find a vessel and get it surveyed through maritime. It's um, quite an ordeal, but... It's well worth it in the long run. <laughs> I know, crazy. Just to just to take a couple of people out fishing, you've got to go through an arduous amount of uh, red tape. But I know people say in Sydney, they say, oh, they've given up on Sydney fishing. Ah, oh, there's no fish. We can't catch anything of any decent size. Is that complete rubbish? That is, it's, well, it's kind of tough, but there's plenty of good fish <laughs> still to be caught. You just have to uh, think about them as uh, highly educated. And it takes a little bit more to fool them. Yeah. So sometimes it, it involves using um, ridiculously light line for the size of the quarry that you want to target. Uh, other times it's acquiring the freshest bait you can possibly get, like where you're actually using live bait, live squid, live yakkers and things like that. Uh, a natural bait on light tackle to fool them. Yeah. yeah. I know people say, before we get into like talking about tackle and everything like that, I know people say, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, go lighter. The lighter you can go, the better. Does that have a truth of element? Because sometimes I've been out, maybe have, you know, overhyped the gear, you know, too big a braid or too much poundage. Um, do you find you definitely catch more fish on those lower, lighter lines? Certainly do. Yep. Most definitely. There's less resistance. You can fish it lighter. So therefore, it presents much more natural to the fish and um and yeah you'll definitely get more bites whether or not you can actually convert that using your angling skill on that light line uh into a capture is a different sort of kettle of fish (laughs) but um sometimes it pays just to go light to get the bite 
Yeah. And uh, it, it is advantageous around Sydney. Yeah. Give me some examples. I mean, we probably didn't go into this early on for the questions, but give me some examples of some fish, just so people, people feel sort of at ease you know, going lighter when they think they should go heavier. What sort of fish are you catching on? What sort of line? Like, you know, whether it be obviously we're talking about Mulloway Jewfish today. Give me an example of some, of some outfits that yep. you've used and what sort of size fish you've got coming in. Because I tend to go overboard too. I go to the heavy heavy braids, you know, thinking, oh, I might get a flathead, might get a mulloway, might get who knows what you're going to catch. Yeah, yeah, I completely understand that. And um, plenty of people uh, have the same sort of uh, objective when they go fishing. They think big fish, really heavy line. Um, but so we're talking like when we're soft plastic fishing, we're talking about four to seven kilo rod running anywhere between six and 10 pound braid with a 10 to 15 pound leader and that's for soft plastics fishing um, then when you want to get into a uh, little bit heavier plastics for bigger fish say if you know that they're in the zone you might step it up to a six to eight kilo rod 15 to 20 pound braid and about 20 pound leaders usually adequate for it and that matches the size of your jig head so you can cast the weight of the plastic yep, and yep. the jig head and for the size of the fish that you're likely to encounter uh, when you go into live baiting, again, you can use that same 6 to 8 kilo rod with the 15 to 20 pound braid, 20 to 30 pound liters, and then you can go up from there, um, depending on the size of your bait and the size of the fish that you're likely to encounter. And we'll go up to outfits uh, to 10 to 20,000 size reels uh, if we have to, uh, with 40 or 60 pound braid. Yep. Yeah. It's usually enough to stop them. Yeah. Obviously, you've, you've taken a client out. I know we'll be talking before the show, but just to let the listeners know, what's sort of a good, you know, on those two and a half thousand size reel, what sort of braid are you using? What's the biggest mulloway you've bought in? You've seen a, either yourself or one of the clients bring in. Okay, so personally, we use five pound Power Pro on our 2500 size reels with a 10 pound leader. Um, and our biggest fish uh, went to a 70 year old retired gentleman, uh, and it was 15 kilos. And it only took around uh, eight to 10 minutes to land. Really? Um, yeah, it was in the middle of winter, so the fish wasn't super excited. Um, you know, they're a bit of a sluggish sort of a fight. They're not overly dirty fighters. We just keep the pressure on, use the vessel uh, and the electric motor to um, aid in the fight and to pull the fish away from tight cover. And, yep. um, yeah. Five pound, you know. I, I, I think I'm using, what am I using on mine? I've got a couple of two and a half thousands, a Stratic, the red one. I'm six pound. And sometimes I go six pound. Yeah, you know, liter or ten, eight pound, ten pound, just depends on what. Because sometimes I think if I get, that's what I'm always afraid of. I think if I get that big fish, I'm not going to be able to land it. But then I've thought of when I've caught brim or a decent size flathead. I mean, it's never, never, never even really given me drag a bit of a workout. Might a little bit as it's coming up. So maybe I am underestimating the gear. Exactly. Yeah, and those smaller outfits, you're likely to actually pick up more bycatch while using them as well on that lighter gear of your brim and flathead in between. Because jewfish mm. don't bite all day long. Mm. You, you can catch maybe one a day we base it off is a good day um any more than that is sensational but mixing it up with a few flathead and brim in between those bites just to keep your reaction times going um when, when you're soft plastics fishing is uh advantageous as well because when that bite finally does happen uh you're ready to strike because you've been getting a few other bites throughout the day as well yep yeah. um Obviously, with uh, Sydney Sport Fishing Adventures, you uh, take people out for a lot of different species. So what are the uh, species you cover when uh, chartering and taking people out? Right, so we start all the way at the headwaters of the Hawkesbury and the harbour, and we'll fish all the way down. So in the Hawkesbury, we've got bass and estuary perch. Uh, then we go down a little bit further, and we can have a blend of uh, estuary perch, flathead, and brim. And sometimes we can get a real good crossover and actually get some mulloway in amongst that mix as well. Um, and then we get into the pelagic fishery through summertime. We've got bonito, salmon, tailor, uh, the almighty kingfish, 
Uh, and then the odd oddities of cobia and samson fish and amberjack as well. Um, we target squid, brim, the you name it, whiting on poppers, any kind of modern contemporary technique that's come through these days, we'll focus on that. I've got a, a modern sophisticated boat with electric motor and the side scanning sounders and oh, yep. four-stroke engine. Um, so we can pretty much get into anything up to about 20 centimetres of water and anything up to around 30 metres of water. Nice, mate. I know we're talking about Mulloway fishing. Tell us about the Mulloway in general. So, you know, maybe the lengths it grows to, the average sizes, where they, you know, what sort of areas do they feed in, what areas around Australia. Just give me the general rule about the species. Right, so there's two Mulloway species. You've got the black jewfish that ranges down to sort of mid-north Queensland area, and that ranges all the way around over to mid-WA. And then through the southern half of um, Australia, we've got just the standard Mulloway that everyone sort of knows. It's... It's um, got the orange mouth, long silver flanks, uh, little portholes dotted down its um, lateral line. They're quite a stunning fish. Um, they have maximum growths up to around a metre 80. Um, commonly caught in the estuaries from soapy size, which is anything from juvenile like egg size up to around that 60 centimetre mark. Then we typically call them school jewfish over that, yep. uh, up to around the metre mark. And then I typically personally call them mulloway once over the metre mark. Um, the average stock of them is in between that 60 and metre mark. Uh, that is the majority of fish that are available. Um, that's the size of fish we predominantly target. Um, the odds are in our favour that way. Um, the bigger fish, you know, we classify them as once-in-a-lifetime type of fish. If you fish often enough like we do, you're lucky enough to see a few more of those fish in your lifetime than, yep. than what most do. When you're normally getting them, say, what sizes are you getting them in? You know, like, you know, obviously you do a lot of uh, estuary fishing as well. It depends on what areas. What, what's the average you think you're seeing generally? Uh, the average is between that 60 and a metre mark. Yep. Um, with the, the current regulations on the, the Mulloway stock, they are actually showing up in better numbers over the metre mark, um, I've found. But only time will tell. It's only been a few years since they've done it. So uh, time will tell as to um, how good those uh, plans yep. are going to turn out, the implementation of it. And, uh, you also touched on the areas where we find jewfish. So we're looking at major back eddies. We're looking at reef complexes, rocks, caves, dropovers, uh, holes when you start getting into smaller systems. So a lot of if it's a shallower system, uh, all you need to find is the deeper holes on the deeper outer bends and things like that. Yep. And you'll find them, uh, you've got wrecks, um, any kind of artificial reef, man-made, anything like that that breaks the current, gives them somewhere to hide, you'll typically find jewfish there at some stage of the tide or day or night. Yep. Yeah. I know a lot of guys, they go, oh, get, go to the bridges. They're going to sit behind pylons. That, that, I guess that's my first question. How do they get the name of the jewfish? Is that because, is it a, do you know how they got the name? I don't know. There's a lot of different things going around saying they were lazy. I thought, maybe we should avoid saying Jewish lazy. But. <laughs> no, I completely understand that. Um, there is a, an old rumor going around that it was based on the fact that the jewfish has a jewel in its head. All fish have this jewel. It's called the otolith. Um, which is an ear bone. It yep. gives the fish a sense of direction and uprightness while it's in the water. I don't know, I'm not sure if that's a word. But <laughs> um, it, it lets it get its bearings. So the bigger the fish gets, the bigger this jewel gets the ear bone, the otolith. And um, because jewfish grow to such a, a size, it's quite an impressive jewel. It's like a hard quartzy sort of material. Ooh, okay. And so jewfish, jewelfish, and this is where I think the origins of that name come from. 
Nice. Yeah. Okay, good stuff, mate. I mean, again, you were talking about where they congregate, but are they, I mean, is it beaches, deep holes, estuaries, as we're just talking about, bridge pylons? Um, I guess, because some people go out thinking they're fishing in the right spot, but mm-hmm. they're not fishing in the right spot. So what should I be looking, deep hole, what definitely, if I'm going to go out and I'm going to go to my estuaries, what should I look for? And yeah, what should I look for? Okay, the typical areas. So, say let's let's take the bridge pylon because it's an easy structure. You don't need a depth sounder to find the bridge pylon, and it's it's a visually uh, accessible place where we can go and fish. And we know that fish congregate. They have generally got lights at night, and then the bridge pylons, which span through the whole water column, which are going to attract bait fish, even surface bait fish, because they'll sit in the eddies mm. that are created up on the surface, and the fish will sit. The big predatory fish will typically sit down in the bottom in the deviations of the bottom or behind the pylon, but typically in front of the pylon. Now, there's an area called a pressure wave, and any reef or anything that creates a displacement in the water, so a reef, a lump on the bottom, or a bridge pylon that's going vertical in the water column is going to displace water. Now, in front of that, it's like the pressure wave on a ship. You can see that big lump formed in front of it. That's actually a slack pocket of water. And if you're a cluey predator, you'll go and sit in that slack pocket of water in front of the structure. It's a free ride. You can wave your little pectoral fins around without (laughs) having to use too much energy. But you're first in line for anything that comes down. You can dart out of your safety little pocket of water that you're sitting in, grab the offering, and move back into your slack pocket with minimal effort. And this is what the jewfish love. So that's when the tide's flowing. Um, The key time to actually catch the jewfish is right around that change of tide period. Uh, as that water slackens off, because of their lazy nature, they will then move away from the structure and feed in the peripheral of it. Okay, right. Where it's easier to swim around, cruise around. Um, as the current backs off, I theorize that the bait fish lose their orientation because there's no current flow to keep your head into. And so the bait breaks up a little bit, makes okay. it an easier um, opportunity for the jewfish to feed on. And um, that's when we get the majority of our action is right an hour or so either side of that tide. Do you normally, when you're fishing or take clients out, do you hit those structures or no? You can you just find the deep holes or what, what do you generally look for as well? So I typically stay away from bridges and places where people can easily find. Um, and I'll, I'll use my depth sounder to find other areas that are hidden. Yep. Uh, say. Sometimes you can see the depressions on the surface, the big upwellings and things created, which is the displacement. And so if you can physically see something on the surface and then take your boat over with a sounder, run it over there, you see a pinnacle, a reef, a rock, a wreck or something down there, that's a likely area that if people are unaware of it, you've got probably a better chance of catching a jewfish there because it sees less pressure. And so the fish feel more comfortable to stay in an area like that. Um, But your sounder and your eyes are your best um, assets on the water for finding jewfish and finding spots to yourself. So holes, they're great. Um, this, the big misconception is that you actually fish in the hole um, where you should actually fish. When a fish is going to feed, uh, we'll put this in a mathematical equation, yep. where you have 10 metres of water versus 5 metres of water, uh, you have better opportunity of actually trapping something as a predatory fish in 5 metres of water than you do in 10. Because 10, they can move 10 metres away from you. In 5 metres, they may move up, see a bit of light and sort of force the bait back down to the bottom so that right, that shallower gotcha. water is actually trapping the fish down, yep, gotcha. the bait fish down. So there's this little window of opportunity they get to feed in. So when yeah. you're doing a hole, 
you need to find the hole because that's the protective place where they'll lay up when they're not feeding. But you actually fish the edge of the hole yeah. where the fish are going to move up to go and find food somewhere, up onto the flats. And they do get up on the flats and roam around and stuff, just like Brim do. Yeah. yeah they, oh, they, they go hunting around. <laughs> They're pretty active at times in that smaller size. The bigger ones are a bit more lazy and typical right on the tide change. Yep. Yeah. How, a lot of people, I mean, even myself, spent a couple of years, I mean, I wouldn't say I've gone out a lot, but a lot of people say they're tough to catch. Are they tough to catch? Uh, they can be, and they still fool me more times than I fool them, probably. <laughs> but um, you do have good runs of them, and when you get onto a patch of them, you sort of want to try and stay with those fish and, and hit them as often as you can um, to get your experience levels up, obviously. Um, but a lot of people think, too, that nighttime uh, is is a better proposition than daytime. Oh, on the Hawkesbury, I reckon I can attribute... 95% of our captures to being during broad daylight um, and even in the middle of the day. Um, my tag card records show that a lot of our fish are caught in the middle of the day, even though we've been out there since the crack of dawn. Yeah. Because um, a lot of people say nighttime, oh, I've got to go at night, got to have, or, I don't know, full moons. Does the full moon make a difference? What about barometers? Is that, is that a big thing? Um, barometer is actually quite a big thing in the Jewfish's um, daily feeding habits because they have such a large swim bladder. Um, the barometer does affect them. Uh, so, but in saying that, you can have good bites and um, you'll have it on wind changes. You'll have it on pressure drops or pressure rises before thunderstorms. And it's all due to shifting barometric pressure. And this is what makes them fire up. Um, so I've found. And that sometimes can override actually fishing a tide change. Uh, having that barometric pressure change, it could be right in the middle of a tide. And if you've got your baits or lures in the water and that change happens and they switch on, it can be hell for leather. And uh, you want to have some good preparation up your sleeve. Dan, tell me uh, Mulloway. I know Mulloway, some people say they're not a dirty fighter. Some say they are, like kingfish. Um, Tell me what sort of fighter they are. Uh, They're reasonably um, nice to the angler, actually. Bust-offs with them compared to kingfish are uh, quite minimal, really. Um, we do find, though, having a mobile approach um, once a fish is hooked uh, is definitely advantageous. So with the light line lure fishing, we've always got the electric motor in the water. When a hookup occurs, we pull the fish. Uh, we take the boat away from structure, and the fish typically gets fought back towards the boat out into open water. Um, worst case scenario is taking the boat straight above the fish if it's run up on top of a shallow reef and staying vertical on top of the fish. The line has a, a lot less chance of being snagged um, once vertical, than it does if you let the fish run out on you know, numerous metres, say 50, 60 metres, and the line angle's very acute. He only has to run across a small rock for that line to clip it. Mm. And it, it might be uh, inadvertent. He might not even be actually running to bust you off. He just accidentally you know, runs back across structure and the line's got such an angle that it cuts off. So we typically try and, if a fish is going into dirty cover, is get directly on top of the fish. And uh, that seems to work quite well. Um, you rarely lose a fish in that situation. And then at other times on an anchored boat, say, for example, we're fishing the bridge and we're fishing that upstream pressure wave. Yep. So we've anchored ourselves 30, 40 metres above the bridge. We've drifted baits back down and positioned them in front of that pylon. Then a fish eats it and takes 20 metres of line off you. He's now past the first pylon and he only has to go left or right to find another one. Uh, we'll have a big buoy tied to our anchor rope, the end of our anchor rope. In that situation... In the Hawkesbury's fast currents, we'll, we'll have had a fair bit of anchor line. Instead of having to pull the boat forwards to lift the anchor, 
we can just toss the whole anchor rope straight over and chase the fish immediately straight back. Get on top of the fish and pull him through the bridge pylons and get him out the other side. Or, Or say if it's a reef behind you or anything like that or a major point where he's going around the corner, we can chase that fish back, get the line back and then play him out in clear cover. The beauty of having that boy on my anchor rope is I can then come back to the same place and pick my line up with making minimal fuss. We haven't disturbed the anchor on the bottom with the chain bouncing around or making noise. Mm. And we can pull that same position up and put bait straight back in the water and hopefully have another shot at catching his mate. Right. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, What's the best time? I know when we were talking before we started the interview, what's the best time to uh, fish from Mulloway? I would have thought, you know, summer fish, you know, they're rearing to go. Am I incorrect? Uh, slightly. The more effort people put in over summer, the more dewfish you'll see. Uh, typically, most fish, the science is inconclusive at the moment, but my theories on it are, is that they go offshore to spawn. Um, you hear a lot of captures out there of, uh, of fish offshore in the inshore reefs, 40 to 60 metres. So as the weather cools, the fish tend to come back into the system in, in early autumn, and we're ex- currently experiencing that right now. Uh, and they'll stay in the system all winter time, even through the depths of winter in, into 12-degree water temps. And uh, they'll stay all the way through to springtime until that water gets up to around 25 degrees. And then we notice a sudden decline uh, in the larger fish. The smaller soapy size stay around, which is typical because there's lots of school prawns for them to feed on and flourish. Yep. Where the bigger mature fish over that 75-centimetre mark, uh, I feel turn around and head straight out shore, congregate and school up. And, uh, and spawn. So we catch a lot of our better fish in autumn and spring during that transition zone, and uh, we catch a lot of good fish uh, up to and over that metre mark through the winter months. Oh, so winter, you say, is pretty good too. Not bad, not a bad time to go it's out. It's not bad at all. Uh, humans hibernate, not fish. Now, we have to think about the environment <laughs> they're in. They're in a controlled environment. It's, it's 12 to 14 degrees consistent, day and night. Out here, we get fluctuations from below zero to over 20 degrees during the day. Mm. And we have to deal with that, the wind and everything. But down there, it's just life goes on. They might be a bit more sluggish, but uh, life goes on. Um, so you definitely don't have any problem catching them in the wintertime? Oh, no, not at all. The, the one problem we do have is actually acquiring live bait in the middle of wintertime. Uh, it is possible, but it's a lot harder. A lot less bait there and a lot less water. Um, and so we find lures are definitely more effective through wintertime. That way, from dawn at that key time, you have a live bait in your hand. Just to add a little bit of action out of your rod tip. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. What uh, part of the tide? Top, bottom, when's the best that you find, or, or, or time of day as well? As I said, I know you said during the, uh, uh, you, during the day you've caught your best fish. So The middle of the day, yeah, is uh, quite a good time. Uh, I find, and this is, could be just uh, a local base thing in the Hawkesbury, but um, because we've got dirtier water overall flowing through the system up and down, it's not because of any kind of human error or anything like that. It's just yep. a big brackish system. And it gets a lot of tidal flow that stirs up the silt on the bottom. Uh, we actually find that they feed quite well through the day um, because they do have that cover of the dirty water. Uh, as opposed to night time, I've, I've had little results um, at night time. And I've caught all of our better fish, including our 30 kilo fish, um, and lots over the 20 kilo mark during broad daylight and in the middle of the day. Now, tide changes are crucial. Despite what the moon is, the, whether it's full, new, half, as long as you have a tide change coming up and you've got good baits or you've got your lures ready and you've got electric motor and everything, you've got every chance at catching them. There is no way you could possibly predict when they're going to feed. And um, I was telling you a story about uh, just the other day 
where we fished the key tide change at 8 o'clock in the morning after acquiring live baits first light. It only took us 40 minutes. We had 30 baits in the tank. Wow. Okay. Um, we put them in the water and fished both sides of the high tide change. Um, so that's the last puff of the incoming and then switch the boat around to lay back up, uh, fishing back into the hole um, for the first part of the run out and got nothing. And then uh, we changed locations. It was mid-tide on a run out. The water was putrid uh, and was it probably had a couple of knots of current running. Um, we found a big back eddy and put the baits in there and we had a wind change happen at 12.30. <laughs> and that's exactly when we caught the fish, mid-tide. Now, you couldn't have... You couldn't write a book about that. It's just the fact that we had good baits still and we were persistent and we put the baits in the water and we thought about the lazy nature of the fish and we got that bait in a back eddy and there was How an How many did you get in that one? Just one or? Just the one. A good we, size or? It was a good size. It was just under the meter mark, just shy of the meter mark. It was a personal best for my client. And uh, yeah, middle of the day fish and everyone else had packed up and gone home. <laughs> I know you were saying too, catch them in any depth, but when you're looking for something, I mean, you said talk about holes. Can you catch them in you know a meter of water? Is it yeah thirty meters of water? What are you generally seeing? So typically in the, in the Hawkesbury uh, Harbour's a little bit different. Harbour, I look for like twenty meter holes um, because you've got boat traffic, clean water, mm. and and the like. And they'll actually bite better in a place like a busy harbour. Will bite better at night than say the Hawkesbury. That's a quieter system. Yeah, it's, gotcha. and it, having the two fisheries side by side is quite interesting. So it's good to have that deep water nearby. So say uh, depths of over 10 metres, um, there's, there's minimal light down to 10 metres, especially in the Hawkesbury. Um, so, and we'll catch them up into depths of, say, two metres during daylight. Um, and that's typically casting up onto a shallow edge and then going to work it back down an edge into deeper water. And the fish is just that active that is right up the top. Um, a lot of the times, though, a a favourite depths around that five metre mark. Yeah. All right. Okay. I want to talk about uh, live baits, you know, what the best live baits are. I know people have got a lot of different ideas and then we'll probably go into, I'll ask you the question a minute about soft plastics and lures. But let's talk about live baits. What should I be looking for? What's going to catch them? Obviously, live bait's pretty good, so. Yep. Live bait is, is the duck's guts. It's what they see every day. It's what they hang around every day and uh, you present a semi-injured version of one and they're very likely to take it in a hard-pressed fishery. Um, so what we're looking for in live baits is something that's quick to catch, so you don't have to spend hours and hours doing it. You want something that you can catch within an hour or two. So either going squidding um, or a combination of all, uh, catching live yellowtail, which should only take you around an hour to do, um, with the addition of a bit of burly and some uh, hand lines. Um, so live yak is anything from little pencil size, say from 10 centimetres all the way through to bigger size ones around that 30 centimetre mark for the really big jewfish or mulloway. Um, and then I love in the estuary, I love a, a southern herring, uh, which are a saltwater herring. Um, not a lot of people know about them. Um, they're quite easy to catch when you can locate them, generally around pylons or reefs or anything creating that displacement. Coincidentally, same place where you typically target a Jewfish. <laughs> um, you can catch live yellowtail. You typically catch them around the ocean mouths um, and then take them all the way back up the estuary. As long as you've got a good live bait tank that can hold them or flushes through while your vessel's moving, um, you can actually take them quite a ways up the estuary and the fish, because it's a, a uh, wounded bait fish, they will have a crack at it if they're feeling in the right mood. Dan, tell me, mate, if you had to pick one live bait best on Jewfish... Best on Jewfish would have to be live herring, personally. 
Um, followed closely by a live yakker. Um, and then a dead squid, funnily enough. <laughs> yeah. How hard are the yakkers to catch, especially when you're going in like Sydney, um, whether you're in the harbour or you're in the Hawkesbury? Are they generally easy to get during the during the uh, summertime? They're reasonably easy and pretty reliable. So I can go down there most days and uh, expect to catch them. Some days they're harder than most. Um of the time, they're pretty easy to catch. Add a little bit of burley. I just use bread, um, nothing too complex. And uh, I start with a little bit of uh, bait on my hook, just a little bit of prawn or a bit of squid or something like that. Um, Catch the first one. I actually find, as it's not exactly the uh, most kosher thing, but I actually find using the first yellowtail and taking the fillets off him, just you know, knock him on the head yep. and uh, take the fillets off him and cut them into little cubes. Uh, some of the best bait for catching yellowtail. It's actually quite hardy on the hook. Yep. You catch five or six on the one bait, making it a, a quite a quick process. So they don't mind eating their own kind? No, not at all. <laughs> um, talk about live bait when you're catching them. What, where should we be looking? Are you out in deep water? Are you on the side? Are you out near rocks or you near jetties or where are you at? So we're looking for shallow reefy areas, somewhere where it's safe to uh, put an anchor down so you're not in uh, swelly areas um, where you you know, your anchor is likely going to get pulled or, or pulled out and you get put on the rocks, but somewhere nice and calm. Um, the main bait station at um, the Hawkesbury is West Head, and it's depicted by a couple of pillboxes on the bank there at the entrance to uh, Pitwater, and it has shallow bommies. It does have a little bit of swell running on it, but um, during daylight hours, you'll be able to see those areas. There's similar areas where you'd actually target your squid, the broken ground, the broken rock, where you can see dark and light patches, yep. generally up to depths of around that five-meter mark. Um, and there are other tactics as well where you can find them in deeper water and use your electronics, your sounder, to find a ball of bait and drift over the top of them with a sabiki jig or a bait jig. Oh, yeah. And drop straight into the school. They'll typically eat it as it falls into the school, bring them up, and uh, just keep repeating drifts until you have ample amount of bait to go fishing with. Yeah, I always wondered those things. Sometimes I've had great results as little sabiki jigs. Other time. The bastards just won't get on there. Yeah, sometimes you've got to bait them. Sometimes um, they don't like ones with tinsel on them. Yeah, and I feel that that tickles their nose. So I like the ones with a bit of fish skin. Yeah, the bait fish can be just as hard to catch as the big fish. Some days. Yeah, I know. I just have heard that some people say, you know, like I've tried it myself, and they just I can see them. They just won't get on there. Yeah, is my hook too big? Are they just not? Am I not jigging it enough? Sometimes you have to present, and I I prefer a handcaster for the live yellowtail. I prefer a bait jig for the herring. Um, and unbaited for the herring. Once you find a school of them, you actually work them into a frenzy. But the yellowtail, I find a handcaster about 10 metres, 8-pound fluorocarbon on there, and I run a, a double zero ball sinker down to a long shank hook, like a size 12 long shank, just a tiny bit of bait on the end of that hook. The yeah. long shank will allow um, you to not be bitten off by silly little things like leather jackets and uh, chop a tailor if they come through, but it also allows you to not touch your bait to shake it off into the tank. Okay. Now, gotcha, by having yeah. the ball sinker sliding on the line, if the so, bait so fish... straight down to the hook, no problem. Straight down to the hook, not a problem at all. That's advantageous if the bait fish won't come up near the surface for some reason. Or if there's a little bit of wind, that little bit of weight will help you get the bait down. But I find actually sliding that ball sinker back up the line and fishing an unweighted hook, when they become really fussy, will get you a lot more bites and a lot more bait fish. Okay, right. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, good advice. I know because people go, they go, oh, I can't get bait fish. You know, it's too hard. You know, they're not jumping on my hook. Where do I go? So a lot of different people, a lot of different opinions. So, all right, let's talk about lures. I know you said sometimes when, you know, the live bait's not there, you can't get access to it or for whatever reason. How, I mean, how hard would you say it is to catch Mulloway on, you know, lures? It's reasonably difficult, but 
with uh, techniques and things, it, it becomes even easier. And it's all about hitting locations at the right time. Now, casting lures around while the boat's drifting in a few knots of current is um, it's not exactly the uh, most easiest thing to do, trust me. <laughs> so what, what we aim to do is actually fish those tide changes yep. and really uh, put all your effort into chasing around tide changes so that it's nearly like you're fishing in a pond. Because there's slack water, you get to stay on the area a lot longer and it actually allows you to fish a lighter lure and get it down into the zone, which is down near the bottom, at those key times where the fish are going to be active, the current slowed down, it's easy for you, it's easy for the fish, and then you're putting the odds more so in your favour. Yeah. Um, Does lure size make a difference at all? It can make a difference depending on what bait they're feeding on. And you can have a 10 kilo fish that's exclusively feeding on three inch long school prawns. <laughs> and it, it's hard for the angler, and you've got to get it through in your mind that you can throw a small lure and catch a big fish. When you're throwing a really big lure, you're really limiting your success of what you're actually going to catch on that lure. Um, for most people, they're generally happy with a school-sized fish between that 50 to a metre sort of mark. Um, and throwing those smaller three- to four-inch-sized profiles will catch you a lot more fish, brim and flathead as bycatch also. Yeah, what type of – let's talk about what – I mean, let's give them some specifics. What type – you're talking soft plastic, you're talking hard baits, you're talking blades. What are we talking about? All right, I've, I've had minimal um, results on blades. I typically find they foul up because I like fishing reef. Um, so something that's worth $15 sinks like a stone and has six hooks on the bottom is not my idea of having fun on the Hawkesbury. <laughs> <laughs> True. Because when you're thinking about the dollars, you're not thinking about catching fish. So soft plastic, you know, you're aiming at about – maximum $2 a rig, um, and it's got an upwards-facing hook. So we can sink that into some pretty gnarly country. Um, Soft vibes do work, um, and I've seen some good fish caught on the soft vibes, um, but they're typically quite heavy. They're good in the deep water areas, like deeper holes without the structure, Um, but soft plastics definitely reign supreme over the gnarly stuff. Um, So we're looking at lure sizes... um, from three to five inches, we're looking at stick baits, just like your minnows with no inherent action where the angler actually has to impart a lot of action into a lure like that. Yep. They're great for getting down deep when the current's running a little bit or the wind's pushing you around a little bit. They don't have any dangly bits to resist in the water so they can actually get down in the water column quite quick. Um, and then once the tide backs right off and we're in that slower water, you want some hang time on your, your lure when it's sinking down. That's yep. when we start getting some action We'll go to like um, big grubs, uh, big curl tail grubs. We'll go to creature baits at times, like um, the old Berkeley hog used to be a pretty good one. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Um, and then and like the gulp nemesises and stuff like that. And I think they have some new nemesises out. And then anything with a paddle tail is oh, yeah. anything that looks like a little bait fish, a little herring or a mullet or a tailor is duck's guts. And they always seem to get a run on my boat, whether I'm running a minnow. Generally, someone's running a, a paddle tail as well. Yep. I think I actually got some Z-Man paddle tails down there. I, got a, that was, I was telling you, it caught me big flatted before. That was on a little red uh, Z-Man paddle tail. Yeah, they're a I great lure. I'm not sure what size it was. I can't remember. 80, maybe 80 mil, I think. I can't remember. But speaking about that, jig heads, sinking those lures. I know, especially with brim fishermen, a lot of different people say, oh, you know, quarter ounce or heavier, get it down there. You've got to get it down quick. Or wh- when do I know what jig head to use? All right, so typically based on the water depth, you can run at an average of if you go for one gram of weight to every meter of water that you're fishing. So say five meters, you want a five-gram head. 
10 metres, you want a 10-gram head. So that's a three-eighths. Or yep. then you're going back down to the quarter when you're around that five-metre mark. And then when the tide's... Like, say you've got a perfect day, you've, you've timed it well, you've got no wind, the current's backed right off, you can even get away with up to an eighth. As long as you've got a decent, strong hook on there, you can get away with one-eighth, so three-and-a-half grams of weight yep. to pull that three-inch or four-inch lure down there. And you're likely to get more bites on that because it has such a subtle sink in the water. It's not bombing the bottom. So True. most of the jewfish will bite after you've jigged your lure up. They'll bite it as it's falling on the drop. Now, if you've got a lure that after you jig it up, hits the bottom within seconds, it doesn't give you a very long window for that fish to actually get up on that lure and eat it. Now, he doesn't want to eat it off the bottom because he's going to get a face full of mud. So he wants to True. eat it on that hang back down. So we need to select something that, that has that subtle sink. You know, you're looking at maybe after you jig it, five or six seconds before it hits the bottom again. Right. Yeah. Do you carry different? I mean, do you have a range of different jig heads? Oh, when yes. You're using the them biggest tackle box you can find that'll stock jig heads in it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I just thought you know maybe is it, you have three or four types, or you just a, ra- a range of different products. A, a whole range. Um, different jig heads do work better with different plastics. I've found over the years, so you can have combinations like a nitro head works well with that Z-Man plastic. Yep. Yeah. Um, and this, that, and the other. And uh, but I typically stay in the um, TT headlock range. Um, they've got a really good hook on them. They've got good weights. Um, they're quite a compact jig head, and they hold on to most plastics with their, their separated keeper. Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, they've got yeah. like a little on the edge, so they can't because I, I bought the ones without it, and then all of a sudden they just kept coming. Your plastics are pulling down, down, down hook, a little yeah. bit, yeah. No, and they work good on all different plastics. Um, they really hold them on there, and you need that because sometimes you'd be doing pretty aggressive um, rips with the rod tip, and there's nothing worse than your plastic being what we call pantsed. Um, as you're jigging it, because then you pretty much got to wind it and fix it up and, and yeah. cast it back out again. It's unproductive. The more times you can have that lure in the water at that key time, the better your results will be. No worries. We'll be right back with Dan Selby from Sydney Sport Fishing Adventures. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. The Sporting Shooters Association of Australia proudly presents the largest event for the sport shooting industry right here in Melbourne, the SSAA Shot Expo, May the 23rd and 24th. For the true enthusiast, the SSAA Shot Expo showcases the professionalism and commitment to safety of sport shooting in Australia. Safety and training demos, ethical hunting and conservation, outdoor and camping, archery, it's all on show. The SSAA Shot Expo, Melbourne Showgrounds, May the 23rd and 24th. Pay on the day or go to shotexpo.com.au for sponsors, exhibitors and online bookings for everything bushnell go to red fox outdoor supplies online store for a full range of bushnell rifle scopes rangefinders, binoculars night vision spotting scopes and hoppies gun cleaning products red fox are also major online retailers for the popular aussie Maxbox brand and the rest of the innovative products distributed by eagle eye hunting gear all at red fox outdoor supplies so go to the website redfoxoutdoorsupplies.com.au or phone Greg on 0412 495 712. Hey Mars, did you know there's a place in New South Wales that gun owners, hunters and sporting shooters are very familiar with? Of course Jason, that place is Horsley Park Gun Shop. That's because they've been around for 30 years and have built a reputation for being the best in the business. They have an extensive range of firearms, ammunition, gun safes, optics and accessories for all your hunting and shooting requirements. And did you know, Jason, they always have bulk ammo specials? Absolutely. The friendly staff at Horsley Park Gun Shop are always there to help you and give you the best advice. 
Horsey Park Gun Shop are open Monday to Saturday and you can find them on the internet at hpgs.com.au. Come and talk to the team at Horsley Park Gun Shop at 1848 Horsley Road, Horsley Park or call them on 9620-1313. Do you hunt deer and want to learn the correct techniques for a quality wall mount and premium eating venison? SSAA Sydney Branch provides hunter education courses to help you become a better hunter and to utilise harvested game in the most effective way possible. Course content includes gunning, butchering and caping from experienced hands-on instructors using locally harvested deer. There is no gear required and also includes a barbecue lunch. Courses are held every first Sunday of each month with an 8am sign-in for a 9am start. Course running time is approximately 6 hours and the venue is Silverdale Rifle Range. Cost is $50 per person, so call Andy Mallon at Silverdale Rifle Range on 02-4653-1440 or visit www.sydney.net. All right, Dan, let's talk about, I want to talk tackle. You're taking clients out, they want it, they're going fishing. Let's talk about from a boat first, what sort of gear somebody wants to go target Mulloway specifically, what do they need? All right, so let, we'll have a talk about uh, lure fishing first. So lure fishing, uh, two outfits will suffice, uh, about a three to six kilo rod with a 2,500 size reel, running anywhere between that six and 10 pound braid and then equivalent leaders as well, uh, like 10 or 12 pound leaders. Um, that's good for your, your lures up to around five inches long and up to around 10 grams in weight. Um, and then you're looking at for heavier lures and bigger plastics when you're targeting that bigger size of fish. So any lures between five and eight inches long, and then jig head sizes up to around an ounce, uh, which is quite heavy to cast. You're looking at an outfit of six to eight kilo rod, four thousand size reel, and running some uh, fifteen to twenty kilo braid with a twenty to thirty pound leader. Um, then you go bait fishing. You're going over to that uh, heavier outfit. You can still use that four thousand size reel, six to eight kilo rod, and fifteen to twenty pound braid. Um, varying your leaders to suit your conditions, whether it's a rugged ground or whether you're out on pretty open stuff and you can let the fish run um, without any fear of um, busting off. Sorry, one sec. When you said um, 4,000 reel, 15 to 20 kilo, 15 to 20 pound? Pound line. Sorry, just sorry. making sure. Yeah, sorry. I thought I heard you just say kilo. I'm like, did he say kilo? But go on, sorry. Yeah, continue. no, in pounds on the line there. Um, and then so we can go up to, for running bigger baits, big squid baits, big live yakkers, um, big live tailor, you're looking at an outfit. We run a 12 kilo rod with 40-pound braid and an 8,000-size um, reel on it. The reason why we've got such a light rod is because if you're going to run that heavier drag pressure on braid, there's no stretch in anything. We need something to absorb those big head shakes and, and big, powerful lunges. So we need that little bit of a softer rod to compensate for it all. Uh, if we run a, a broomstick of a rod against it, we're likely to pull hooks, break knots, and uh, all the bad stuff happens. So we need some kind of shock absorber there. Yeah, yep. and that's about as heavy as I run on the juice. You can pull out the big heavy stuff. Obviously, the bait's not going to present as well on you know eighty pound and eighty pound. Um, they don't have cutting teeth, so you don't need to go overboard on the leader. Our thirty pound fish, a uh, thirty kilo fish, I should say, uh, came in on uh, sixty pound leader on a forty one centimeter live tailor. 
Yeah. yeah. What about rod? I mean, rod length, I know that's important. Some people like, especially like I fish from a kayak. Some people fish from a boat. Any specific rod length, especially when you know, you're flicking all day, you want some rod tip action, what do you recommend? Yep. So for casting, anything between 6.6 six and 7.2 is a great length. Um, for bait fishing, we have that crossover. So our 6 to 8 kilo rods are in that 7-foot length. Um, the heavier rods are a little bit shorter. I think they're around that 6.6 six mark bit more stout um if you're doing land-based stuff uh you're looking like casting lures you're looking for about a eight to nine foot rod so you get a little bit of leverage around the rocks and things um and then bait fishing beaches and rocks you probably go up to 10 12 foot um just to clear the breakers in the in the surf zone or if you're doing um you know break walls and and such you want around 10 to 12 foot to clear those big rocks at your feet yeah good stuff what about um, a lot of people have different ideas around braid and mono. Do you specifically only use braid? When would you use mono? Or just give us a rundown on the types of line. Specifically use braid um, from the boat and definitely for all lure fishing, whether you're on the breakwater or on uh, on the beach. Uh, I do have mates that have a preference to fish mono on the beaches um, and only relatively light stuff, 20 pound, and then you can alter your leader. Uh, but mono around rocks is... Uh, definitely advantageous when you're spinning break walls and things like that um just for that abrasion resistance braid if it touches rocks gone you're a goner <laughs> <laughs> mate tell us about the top say that you've seen even if it's clients or even just being out fishing the top say two or three things people are doing wrong when they're out mulloway fishing and that's why they're not successful um so lure fishing we'll, we'll do it um in we'll do bait and lures so we'll go lure fishing um, running too heavy a weight to make the contact with the bottom would be number one. Fishing the wrong times and areas would be number two. And what would the third one be? Probably working the lure too aggressively, I reckon, would have to be up there. Because um, they are a bit of a docile fish. If you put a bit too much action in that lure and make it look a bit too lively, they <laughs> may think otherwise about wasting energy to chase it down. So Really? Yeah. yeah. I've found even through the summer months that just a nice subtle retrieve works quite well. Yeah. yeah. Talking about that, let's talk about the retrieve. I know some people, you know, it's the lift up or two flicks up like soft plastics. You see the guys out there that are selling, you know, soft plastic DVDs and stuff like that. So when you're putting, what should we do? We're retrieving on a slow roll. Is it like a two flicks up, drop to the bottom, then a wind in? Give us a bit of a rundown on, on technique. Yeah, so typically once you cast out, you're waiting for your lure to hit the bottom. The only signal that we get while we're waiting for our soft plastic to hit the bottom is the belly of line relaxing on the surface of the water. That's the only signal you get out of your whole soft plastic is staring at that belly in the line. So this is, it's pretty menial, but that's what you do. Yep. <laughs> so once you find the bottom and you've seen that line relax, you pick up a little bit of slack and give it two quite brisk little flicks, but not so high as you're lifting it more than a meter off the bottom. Immediately after you um, do those flicks, your rod tip will be up around that 12 o'clock mark. You want to wind that slack back down immediately. Um, if you don't, you typically get rod tip wraps, um, especially if there's a little bit of breeze blowing. If you drop your rod tip faster yeah, than that braided me. line. That's me all the time. Yeah, that's, that's another mistake. So we're going to have that as number four. <laughs> um, if you get tip wraps, you're not fishing as good as you could. No. You know, you might get that bite while you're trying to shake that tip wrap off or you put the rod down to undo oh. it. Um, but yeah, and then after you do complete those two hop-ups, uh, two flicks up, the rod tip's up at that 12 o'clock, wind down the slack and reset yourself back at about three o'clock with the angle of the rod. And then you're waiting to see your, your lure hit the bottom again, which that line's going to relax. Once it relaxes and you haven't detected any bites, 
repeat the same process all the way back to the boat. Now, the bites are coming in between. After you've hopped that lure up and you've wound that slack back down, this is when you're expecting the bite to occur as your lure's falling back to the bottom. If you're still watching that braid intently, which you should be, you'll see it flick. Sometimes it can be a big flick. Other times it's like a water drop has hit your line. But if you see that flick, throw the rod back as quick as you can. Yeah? Yeah. Something's grabbed onto it. That, that's the jewfish imploding on your lure. And you need to strike as quick as possible before he decides that that's not real and he rejects it and spits it straight back out. Yeah. And this, this is the hardest part about lure fishing is actually it's you versus the fish and it's that race to throw the rod back in time to get the connection. Yeah. I mean, without being down there with the fish, how long do you think you have before he's going to go, nah, this doesn't sound right or this doesn't feel right? Pooh, off I go, spit it out. So it's already too late by the time you register it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's a dead set race so obviously the more that you do it and the more experienced you are with detecting that bite the more jewfish you'll catch yeah. so I practiced I didn't go straight out and my first fish on soft plastics I wanted to target jewfish that's a, just a very hard thing to do because you may only get one bite in a session you want to practice on other species where you can get multiple ones flathead are a great example and also estuary perch, I found, were very, very beneficial in detecting bites. Now, on an estuary perch bite, you can catch 20, 30 fish in a session if you find a good school. And that's a lot of hits for fish that you're landing, and it gives you really good uh, strike rates. Yeah. Once you get those strike rates up, and you can take that through onto your dew fishing, you'll do all right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Good stuff, mate. I mean, what's, say, top two, uh, your top two or three tips that you'd give for someone that's going to go out and want to go fishing, whether it's with you or it's on their own or with friends, that is going to at least give them some success. What are your top two or three? Tie good knots. If it doesn't look good or it looks bunched up, cut it off and retie it. You have to tie good knots and you have to have confidence that your knot is good. That way, if a fish is going to you know, take you into nasty structure, you can have confidence that what you tied is going to hold up if you need to put that little bit of extra heat on it. Um, the other one is is fish light as light as you can possibly get away with and you'll get a lot more bites in sydney that is definitely um okay two of the biggest factors yep let's you you just mentioned knots another good question what type of knots all right so before um the last couple of weeks i've actually got into the fg knot lately uh fg use your imagination what that stands for one of them's a naughty word the other one's good (laughs) (laughs) um and it is a superb knot. It, you can run really long leaders. Um, it's like a... Um, easy, to, easy to tie? It's, there are some simple methods out there. Um, and I'm, I'm a bit, I want to do a video very shortly of how to tie this knot just to show people the demonstrations that you don't need arms, legs and mouths to tie it, um, which is what I thought before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But before that, I like the bimini twist in my braid to double the thickness of the braid. And then I like the slim beauty knot tied into that and that was a great knot for casting all day it was super strong it held about 95 percent of the breaking strain and uh you could tie it in most things it was it was a great knot awesome mate mate tell us a story we, uh, my listeners always love and they always email me and tell me you know they love to hear stories so tell us a story about maybe a good day of fishing either for your personal accomplishment for yourself i'd probably say catching a mulloway or if not one of your clients someone has had a real good time out there and caught a great fish yeah so i had um one day i've got a client who has a lucky hat and uh, he's been out with me several times uh when he turns up i ask him if he's bought his lucky hat and can he put it on for me (laughs) 
this one morning um, we went out and um, I'd been catching a couple of decent fish uh, at this well-known place in the Hawkesbury. And I said, look, we'll just have a few casts here first thing before we go out and get some live baits. And um, took five casts and uh, my client with a lucky hat <laughs> hooked up the personal best lure caught fish on my boat, a uh, metre 22 and a half. Wow. What's the, hey, hang on, what sort of lure was it? Do you remember? Was I do. It was actually a no-name brand lure I bought from online, wow, um, from okay. the States, from <laughs> Lure Parts Online, funnily enough, and it was a six-inch, uh, it was a pearl white shad, and it was quite a large lure. It was nearly a novelty to throw such a large thing. And uh, that was run on a 5.8 jig head. And uh, yeah, five casts and wallop this fish and i said well you can't get better than that boys we may as well pack up and go back to the pub <laughs> yeah. we all had a chuckle and we were like we're not leaving it's only been half an hour <laughs> yeah sure so off we went and we continued to go and catch baits now my objective was to go and catch some large baits because there was large fish hanging around at this period in time and so we went spinning the washers for um taylor large taylor and um my client had a, a bust off, and we, we were doing quite well on the tailor, and we are having fun doing it as well, casting into the washers and cranking hard bodies back out. Yep, yep. And um, my client actually had one of his tailor hit by a kingfish and completely smoked him on this light tackle, which kind of got the adrenaline back up again. It was rainy and stormy. We were going through squalls, and the sun had come out, and very humid day, and just odd weather, you know, yep. four seasons in a day. And, and we were having fun, and... The tide change was coming up at 2 o'clock. I said, righto, we've got enough baits, guys. Let's, let's go back and have a crack. And we got back there. We set up the spread of baits. We put out a 41-centimeter live tailor, um, which is one of the biggest baits I've ever set out for a Jewfish. Um, and we set out a bunch of live yakas as well, or yellowtail. And uh, we pulled out our sandwiches. It had been 10 minutes. Yeah. It was, you could have timed it. It was five minutes before the, the tide chart said it was going to change. And the 41 centimetre live tailor went off and went off in a big way. Yeah. Um, we cleared the. Oh, yeah. Big zingers. And that was on the 40 pound gear. Um, when we set the hooks, it was on about eight kilos of drag. And I actually reached over and bumped the drag up because it was peeling line like you wouldn't believe. Like we hadn't even set the drag. Wow. Um, we cleared all the other lines out. We pulled the sea anchors out of the water because um, it was a bit windy. We had to use the sea anchors to hold on position. Um, and we gave chase. We threw the anchor over and we gave chase. And about 15 minutes later, up popped the most beautiful sight I've ever seen in my life. 30 kilos of jewfish, a metre 44. Wow. And we had the perfect hookup in the corner of the mouth. My clients um, had already tagged this fish previously this morning, the metre 22 and a half, and elected when we seen where the hookup was. They said, let's tag it, Dan. And mate, my hat off to those guys for, for letting a fish go like that. It's a fish of a lifetime. Um, we readied all the brag mats, the tag gear, everything. It took three of us to haul it over the side to support all its body weight. Wow. Um, we put the tags in it. We got the photos and we successfully released that fish and headed straight for the pub. Yeah. <laughs> is that the uh, biggest fish you've ever seen caught or yourself or is that all your clients? Is that the biggest one you've seen on the boat? Biggest one I've seen uh, caught personally um, and in Sydney uh, in a personal form. Um, I know when I've seen photos of other fish, Yeah. but um, to see a fish of that, that size that nearly spanned my 2.2 metre boat width moly, um, eh? was quite an incredible sight. And uh, the ability to release that fish and uh, get the record for the, the largest tag, Mulloway in New South Wales, is pretty 
pretty special to me, and I'll never forget it. What's the what's the purpose? I forgive my um, not knowing this. What's the tagging for? Is that just so, so if someone else catches it, or what, what's the tagging for? Yeah, so the tagging so we can learn more about their movements, um, oh, where yeah. they go. So do they spawn offshore? You know, do people catch their tagged fish that we've tagged in the estuary in the cooler months? Do they catch them offshore um, through the summer months? And it's just so we can gain more knowledge of them, so we can better manage the stock of fish. So you so it has like something electronic on it, does it? Is that how, how do you track it? No, this is know? this is a manual um, external tag. So the okay. the little yellow tag. Yep. Um, I have done and helped out in the past um, with the acoustic tagging down on the Shoalhaven, where they have acoustic um, receivers and they put a transmitter in a fish. They oh, yeah. cut a cavity, um, put the transmitter inside the fish, and then they can monitor the fish going up and down, or whether it leaves the system and enters another. And they've got a pretty extensive um, network of these receivers up and down the coast, so they can actually see good migrations of fish. Um, that's where a lot of our um, recreational fishing dollars are going into, all the background things where they're doing management of stock and um, seeing their migratory habits so yeah. they can better manage them, take away barriers or things like that, you know, so that fish yeah. can freely move and spawn and, and be sustainable. Good stuff, mate. If people want to find out more about you... They want to book in. If you've got a Facebook page, phone number, email, they want to go on a, you know, they're from Sydney or they're coming in from somewhere around the state, they want to go on a fishing trip. How do they contact you? How do they go about it? Right, you can get in contact with me. You can either jump on my website, www.sydneysportfishing.com.au. You can find us on Facebook, Sydney Sport Fishing Adventures. Uh, Give our page a like there. We're on Instagram as well as Sydney Sport Fishing. or you can give me a call or a text on 0405-196-253. Good stuff. Dan Selby is the owner and operator of Sydney Sport Fishing Adventures. Dan, thanks for your time. Not a problem, Jason. Thanks for having us. You've just been educated, and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.